One of my mentors, the woman who ended up being my doula for both of my births, uh, used to say that the transition to motherhood takes two to three years. And for me, that was when I first heard her say that, it was like this big permission slip that, oh my God, okay, perfect. I've got two to three years to just totally fuck this up and not know what I'm doing and um, sometimes not... um, I sometimes wish maybe that that I wasn't a mother like I, that sounds really strong and but I think that that some women you know have these moments where they're like Shit, what have I done to my life um you know my personal and emotional autonomy is is kind of out the window right now and um there's a lot that sort of happens to a woman's life that we don't fully appreciate that was Jesse Harold and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette episode 126. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. I can't tell you how glad I am that you're listening in today. And I want to take a minute right here at the top of the show to quickly share some appreciation, give out a little thank you. Thank you for listening to this show. I know there's tons of podcasts out there. Thank you for valuing honest conversations. Thank you for being open to hearing from guests whose lived experiences and opinions might be different from your own. That's huge, and that's what we do here. And thanks for the more tangible stuff as well, for taking two minutes or less probably to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening from. Seriously, it's just huge help in spreading the word and helping new people find us. So I really appreciate you taking a second to do that. And thank you, thank you so much for supporting and funding the show on Patreon. This is truly a community-funded podcast now, which means that we have complete freedom to come together with more honesty than ever before, and I am so grateful for that. I have a really wonderful guest to introduce you to today, but first, in case you're new to this show, I'd love to quickly explain what it is that we do here. So at the heart of it, my guests and I are really committed to one simple but powerful thing, telling the truth about our lives. No one's here to sell you anything. No one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life. I certainly don't have any magic bullet 10-day six-step life hack plans for anything. (laughs) As a recovering self-help junkie myself, I am totally over that approach. And my guess is that maybe you are too. Maybe that's even what brought you here. So no, that's not what this show's about. Here at Real Talk Radio, I sit down with athletes, writers, entrepreneurs, parents, coaches, adventurers, artists, activists, and tons of others, and we dive deep into meaningful topics. We talk about work, love, sex, money, addiction, friendship, racism, body image, mental health, grief, fear, courage, change, and everything in between. It's definitely an adult podcast that covers adult subjects, which means that we do often use adult language, so there's your little language warning, Um, and we never shy away from telling the unfiltered truth in an open and honest way, even when it's uncomfortable, and sometimes it is. So with this mission in mind, you won't hear any ads or sponsor promotions. These honest conversations are 100% listener-funded, made possible by awesome regular people like you who give $8 or more per eight-episode season. The show is and always will be free, but if you love it, if these conversations make you laugh, think, or just feel less alone, I hope you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per eight episode season. You've probably heard me say this before, but I really do believe that where we spend our money, how we spend our money, that's a real-time vote for the kind of world that we want to live in. And when you help fund this show, you're voting for a world of honest, judgment-free conversations. You're voting to hear more stories from a wide-ranging group of people, the vast majority of whom are women. So when you support this show, you're saying loudly and proudly that women's voices deserve to be heard and that no topic should be off-limits due to fear or shame. 
This is a show by truth tellers for truth tellers. And as a thank you for supporting the show, you'll get access to over 40 hours of bonus content, as well as our monthly book club, which is super fun, my weekly behind the scenes email series where I share my real life in real time. It's probably, I mean, I'm, I'm vulnerable on the show for sure, but the weekly emails are where I share a lot of my real life as it's happening. Um, and you'll also be the first to know when tickets go on sale for Real Talk Live events and other upcoming events in the future. There are three different funding levels that you can see over on Patreon. There's an $8 level, a $16 level, and a $25 level, each with their own unique, awesome bonuses. Everything that I just mentioned is at the $8 level. Um, up at the $25 level, we do live group Google Hangouts. And oh my gosh, those are so much fun. But again, you can check all that out over on Patreon. So one more time, it's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. And at the very end of this episode, you'll actually get to meet one of our Patreon community members who joins me for a fun little rapid fire question round. So stick around for that after the main episode for sure. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Jessie Harold. Jessie is the founder of Nalumana Women's Wellness, where she supports women through modern day rites of passage, helping them make sense of and thrive in the life changes that change everything. As a life coach, Jessie helps women shift their lives to live unapologetically in alignment with who they are, what matters most, and what's possible. She's also a birth doula and supports women with the transition to motherhood, including navigating their new identity as mother. As a writer, Jessie has been published in Misadventures Magazine, International Doula Magazine, Huffington Post, and Inspired Coach Magazine, and is about to release her first book. In this episode, Jessie talks about big changes and periods of transition in her own life, particularly about becoming a mother and about the specific work that she does to support new mothers as a doula. We talk about the shadow side of making big changes, why change takes so much longer than we want it to, and how to be true to ourselves even as we shift and grow. Even if you aren't a mother and never plan to become one, like me, you'll find so many relatable truths and helpful perspectives in Jessie's stories. It was such a treat to have this conversation with her, which covers not just motherhood, but entrepreneurship, outdoor adventure, reclaiming your body, and so much more. So all of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at NicoleAntoinette.com slash podcast. All right, let's do this. Jesse, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you? I am so excited to get to talk to you. We're going to talk about so many good things today. Yes, I'm really excited. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's start with my favorite question. What are you totally obsessed with right now? Oh, what am I totally obsessed with right now? Um, hmm, right off the top of my head, I'm just really obsessed with the change of the season right now, actually. Um, we're starting to see a little bit of spring here in Nova Scotia, Canada, where I live. And um, me and my family just moved to a little property on the ocean. So this is going to be our first kind of warm season on our new property. And we're just kind of looking forward to planting and chickens also maybe in the works. So I'm kind of obsessed um, with learning about chickens, which is kind of a weird obsession. No, I'm into it. I like it's real specific. Let's get some chickens out on your beachfront property. It's so good. Um, yeah, the change in seasons is something, I mean, obviously at the time of this recording, what's like early-ish April, um, uh, yesterday I went on a couple hour hike in the afternoon. I'm starting to get ready for the PCT and I'm in April. My sort of ambitious goal is to walk or hike eight miles a day. And so I had a couple of free hours yesterday, went like hiked as hard as I could. And it was like that perfect spring afternoon where it was 
was like blue skies, but still chilly, but I didn't have to wear long sleeves and I was kind of sweaty and everything was like starting to bloom and perfect. And it was just this like nature gasm the whole time. I was like, everything's amazing. Ah, yeah. Yeah. I feel like I never notice how kind of, um, insular I am in the winter season until the spring comes and I'm like I want to do all the things I'm so excited and it just feels really good yeah no I agree that was when I because I moved to Bend from uh the Southern California area and had lived there sort of on and off for a while and you kind of forget how awesome it is to have real seasons even when I'm sort of complaining in like the depths of February (laughs) it's like gonna be icy forever it does feel it's like a nice like marked passage of time with the seasons yeah totally totally Mm -hmm. it's wonderful so I know that you have your hands in a bunch of different projects. So when someone asks you what you do, how do you respond? Oh, it's such a tricky one. It kind of sometimes depends on who's asking. Um, so I generally say that I am a life coach, a doula, a writer, and an adventure retreat leader, which is still a mouthful. Um, and then it kind of leaves people's heads spinning. But that's what I say. Um and, uh, and I'm a mom too, which takes up, you know, I can't deny a vast majority of my time. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> Yeah. Can you talk, I mean, just sort of like briefly about some of the different, cause I know you have some interesting like training backgrounds, like for each of those different things. Will you talk about some of the, like, yeah. whether I don't even know if that's the right word, like training certifications, like the different things that sort of play into, um, those different, I guess, like job titles that you just mentioned. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, um, maybe I'll rewind, um, a kind of a longer way because it's um, maybe relevant, but I, so I have an undergraduate degree in neuroscience and theater, which is kind of funny. It's an interesting um, combination. And, right. Yeah. Yeah. I was the only person at my university and I think maybe still to do that combination. It was really fun. Um, and so, and I never actually thought that I was going to use my neuroscience degree. Ultimately, I originally wanted to be a doctor when I grew up um, and kind of really shaped like the vast majority of my adolescent years, um, around, you know, what it, what it took to be a good candidate for medical school. So, so that was where the neuroscience and theater degree came from and, um, took some time off to travel, didn't get into medical school, by the way, tried a couple of times and didn't get in, decided the universe was telling me I needed to do something different. Um, and then got a master's in health promotion, um, which, was a big diversion for me because it was a, you know, focus on the social scientists or sciences and, um, did a lot of uh, qualitative research, um, in that degree program. And then, uh, got a job in, um, public health, uh, with the public service. And so did that for a couple of years and did quite a bit of training there around group facilitation and, and that kind of thing. Um, which kind of added, continued to add to the skill set that I had. So when I graduated from my, or just before I graduated from my degree in health promotion, I was really worried actually that I wasn't going to get a job um, with that degree. I thought like, who hires somebody with a master's of health promotion? Um, and so I was at a party and there was a doula there and she's like, you should become a doula. And I thought, sure. Okay. Oh, that sounds cool. Um, and so I did, I did my doula training. And so kind of all through this time frame, I was also like attending, um, births on the side. And, and it turned out that that work was just like spoke to me so deeply. And I, I love, um, and still love doing that work. So it was kind of, you know, doing that along the same time frame. And, um, my job in the public service was, uh, started to get a little, um, 
actually it didn't start. I think it started off me not really enjoying it right from the beginning, to be honest, it wasn't what I wanted to do. And, uh, and so I was kind of looking for ways that I could expand on my doula practice, um, and start a business of my own. And so I ended up taking, uh, a life coaching training through uh, the center for applied neuroscience, which was so cool. It took kind of, it, it was really quite amazing because it felt like when I did the training that I, you know, was able to take my neuroscience degree, which I never thought I'd use um, unless I wanted to spend my days in a lab with rats <laughs> um, and, and then combined my health promotion work where I did a lot of work on women's wellness and, and access to healthcare and kind of smooshed them together. And it just felt like this beautiful confluence. So um, and I've since done, you know, lots of kind of continuing education and things like that in, the, in both of those areas, both in coaching and in my doula work, um, to continue to grow, um, my, my skill set and my capabilities. So, yeah. Isn't it interesting when you look back at sort of how, you know, point A leads to, you know, whatever point you're at, it's like, seems like me, like the path is, you know, not linear almost always, but even to hear you say, like, I thought I would never use this neuroscience degree or, and you, you thought you were going to use it in a really specific way, going to medical school, doing that. And then like full circle that it winds up playing a role somewhere else. Like everything's connected. I don't know. Things like that always give me a lot of comfort to be like, no, no, the path, there is a path, even if it just doesn't seem to make sense while you're on it. <laughs> Like the path is only clear in retrospect, you know? <laughs> yes. It's so comforting, isn't it? And I think once I started to develop my, my business, my work around uh, like coaching and, and my doula work and started to actually see that even that work was, com was sort of um, had this overarching theme to it. That was when, yeah, I had that deep set feeling of, Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm doing the right thing here. You know, quote unquote, right thing. Like it's, it's, it all kind of fell into place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this yeah. is probably a really obvious question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, just in case there's someone who's listening that's unfamiliar. Can you describe what a doula does? I thought you were going to ask that. Yes. Um, yeah, absolutely. So I um, support birthing women. Um, so typically what I do is um, meet with women, um, you know, two or three times before they have their baby to provide um, some, you know, what I call like the quote unquote nuts and bolts informational support, like what to expect, um, as you, you know, go into labor, what to expect, um, you know, labor to be like, what do you, you know, what are some of the choices that you have, um, when you're birthing, what to expect postpartum, things like that. Informational support, also emotional support around, Hey, you're becoming a mother. What's that going to be like for you? Um, and then I'm, I'm with a woman throughout the duration of her labor and birth, um, still providing that informational and emotional support and also some physical support. So I, I'm not a midwife. I don't, um, you know, assist actually with the birthing of the baby. Um, but I can provide physical support in terms of supporting a woman to say change positions to help make her more comfortable or to help rotate the baby in her pelvis for a more optimal birth experience. Okay. And then I usually do like about six weeks of postpartum support afterwards. And so a lot of the focus of that support ends up being um, breastfeeding and supporting with the transition to motherhood. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I feel like this idea of transition is probably going to end up being a theme of things that we talk about because it sounds totally. like that's your main interest in doing this is like helping people yeah. help you through the transition into motherhood. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Transition is sort of the name of the game for me. Okay. Yeah. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about maybe what you think the 
traditional transition into motherhood looks like? Or maybe like where, in your opinion, do you think societal norms might be kind of failing us and getting it wrong? Mm -hmm. Like for someone who's really passionate about this transition specifically, and I know that we'll talk about others later, I'm just kind of curious Mm -hmm. how you think about like, this is the way it is and this is the way I would like it to be. Yeah, 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 for sure. So we have, there's been a sort of a confluence of things that's happened in our society that have shifted the way that women transition into motherhood. Um, We don't have the same kind of social networks that we used to have. Um, So, you know, it used to be that you would be surrounded by your family or your friends, um, people to bring food and, you know, help you to kind of really just rest and look after the baby and the rest of everything else would be taken care of for you. We don't really have that as much anymore. And we've also sort of our perspectives on, um, I don't know, I think the time that it takes to transition to motherhood and um, vis-a-vis sort of the the busyness of our society and how we value um, our our busyness and also sort of the way we identify ourselves in the world. So, um, so for example, I see a lot of women postpartum who um, being deeply uncomfortable with the amount of kind of nothingness that you do in the early postpartum. Like you just kind of hang around and breastfeed a lot. Um, if you're breastfeeding and if not, like you're still, you're kind of sleep deprived. So you're up all night, you're sleeping during the day, you're not getting stuff done necessarily. And that makes a lot of women, you know, a lot of us who, who live really busy lives and who are used to kind of having, you know, measures of our productivity and kind of gold stars. Um, it makes a lot of people really uncomfortable. And, and also, you know, there is an identity shift that happens in motherhood. And I think that's sort of something that we don't really, um, give a lot of credit to. Um, one of my mentors and the woman who ended up being my doula for both of my births, uh, used to say that the transition to motherhood takes two to three years. And for me, that was when I first heard her say that it was like this big, permission slip that, oh my God, okay, perfect. I've got two to three years to just totally fuck this up and not know what I'm doing. And, um, sometimes not, um, I sometimes wish maybe that, that I wasn't a mother. Like I, that sounds really strong. And, but I think that, that some women, you know, have these moments where they're like, Shit, what have I done to my life? Um, you know, my personal and emotional autonomy is, is kind of out the window right now. And, um, there's a lot that sort of happens to a woman's life that we don't fully appreciate. You know, we prepare for birth and parenthood by like, you know, buying things for the baby's room or, you know, making sure we know how to bath the baby or put on diapers or something like that. But in fact, what I think we need to be paying more attention to is this is going to rock your world. This is going to change who you are. And it changes like the rest of you too. So it's not just sort of this interaction or this, this, this kind of, you know, responsibility that you have for this tiny human. But then also I think for a lot of women, it shifts the rest of their lives. Um, And I know it did for me, like, when I had my daughter, the discontent that I was feeling in my career felt that much more intense because I was, you know, paying someone else to look after my kid while I went to work in a job that I didn't enjoy. And that like really didn't sit well with me. And so it actually catalyzed 
um, shifts in every other part of my life as well. So I feel like we just don't appreciate that as much as we need to. And we don't give women the time that they really need to be in that liminal space of, okay, I'm not who I was and I'm figuring out who I am now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think what you're speaking to is really important because I think this pertains to other identity shifts as well, that it, even though there might be a catalyzing incident that happens overnight, right, like having the baby, that identity shifts, that it's an uncomfortable experience and that it takes time and that's not going to click into place like a light switch. And especially when you were talking about, you know, uh, over that period of time, feeling a whole mixture of feelings, you know, when you're saying oh, almost sometimes, oh, I wish I wasn't a mom or, oh, but then I feel guilty about this, but then I feel this way. I don't know. I think that we put a lot of um, narrow limitations on the emotional response that we're sort of culturally supposed to have to certain experiences. I think that getting married is like this a lot too, that it's like you get engaged and you're just supposed to only be elated. And I had a friend who recently went through this and sure, she was super excited to be engaged and also kind of freaked out and panicked and had all these other things. And then the fact that it wasn't just this like singularly pure joy, nothing else experience, then it's like, then you feel guilty about that. And it's like, well, hang on, why can't we accept that we're human and messy and complicated and that it's very rare that you're going to have only one reaction to literally anything? Exactly. And I think it's so true. And, and, um, you know, something that I tell the women that I work with, um, and this is true of any transition of any kind, that before you get to step into this new identity, there is a loss, you know, and there is grief associated with that. So, and yet you're right, like, we don't get to feel publicly anyways, oftentimes loss and grief when a baby is born. Um, it's supposed to be exciting um, and you're supposed to be thrilled and, and you probably are. And also, you know, you miss the days when you could just, I don't know, go out for a hike by yourself for a couple of hours, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so there is a, a big letting go. And I think we just don't hold the space for women to do that. Um, and, and we assume, we make assumptions about, um, uh, you know, uh, about them and their ability to mother or their, you know, whatever, um, when they feel that full range of complex emotions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then people just like struggle with it in silence. Yeah, totally. totally. I mean, so obviously this is an interesting conversation for us to have because obviously I can't personally relate at all to the experience of having kids. That's, you know, I'm childless by choice. It's not something that I want at all. And so hearing you talk about this, like it's pinging things for me in other areas. Like the thing that I just thought of when you were talking about that was sort of how I felt about sobriety. That's like when you quit drinking, it's seen as this like super positive thing. And, you know, people are happy for you or whatever. Congratulations. Like I'm coming, it's I'm very introspective about this right now because May 1st is my seven year soberversary. And like, that's a long time. And so I start to think about, I get, I tend to in April get like really like introspective about this type of stuff. And like, mm-hmm. Sure, yeah, that is considered a healthy life change. And also, like, I was pissed. Like, I was angry. There's like a lot of loss of things. It's like anything that you go through is always going to have multiple facets. And what if that's okay? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you talk about some of the specific things that you do to support women in this transition or like maybe any suggestions that you have for handling this kind of deep identity shift? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, I think the first thing is literally like just what we're doing right now is naming it and saying, um, you know, I, I work a lot with women sort of prenatally to say, you might feel this, you know, this might be part of your experience and that's okay. And everyone, everyone has that to some degree. And so in a way it's, it's like the, the 
you know, profound and yet small act of normalizing the experience so that when, you know, you have a day, you know, your baby's three months old or something and you have this day where you're like, what, you know, what have I done? (laughs) My life has changed. I don't know who I am anymore that you can feel okay and sit with that. Um, and so I think that that, that that is huge. And also I, I kind of, um, really so support women to identify like what has changed um for them and get really really clear about how they feel about that so sometimes it's positive and sometimes it's it's not as positive um and but just to name it i think to really support them to do that really helps um and and to name you know what they're grieving and what they feel lost about and another thing that i that i love to get women to do is um and this is something that i did when i was like, I guess it was, I don't know, a few months, maybe postpartum with my daughter, um, who's my first babe, um, was to write a mama festo, <laughs> which was about, um, you know, who do you want to be? Like, what do you want to declare for your life as a mother and as a woman who happens to be a mother? Cause you get to be both. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think that's such a great idea. Um, I love what you're saying about the power in naming things and normalizing sort of like whatever the whole range of experiences is. Like I feel like so much of our, I don't know, fear or anxiety with anything is just this like feel like, I don't know, concern of like, well, am I okay? Like, am I doing the right thing? Like, am I, and so just that idea of like, you're fine. It's all good. Right. Like there's, it's like simple and yet profound also. Like I can imagine with something like transitioning to being a mother, that there's a lot of moments of like, well, shit, no one told me it was going to be like this. Like, and that if you can have the experience of having actually told them like that, that, I mean, not that you can prepare someone for everything, of course, but that I can imagine that it would eliminate some of that. I don't know. Like I think about my friend, Lauren Fleshman, when she's been on the show a couple of times and, um, the most recent episode was when she, I mean, she was like, I think a week away from, um, giving birth to her second child. And the whole episode was very real about pregnancy and talking about like, she had a really hard pregnancy the second time and like hated being pregnant and like just said a lot of things that were just like, I don't know, not supposed to say, right. That like Mm -hmm. pregnancy is supposed to be this, like it's beautiful and magical and and maybe it is for some people, but she was basically like, this is bullshit, you know? And Mm -hmm. just hearing that I can imagine and and not only can I imagine my inbox is filled with people who were like, thank you to her for saying this, you know? So like even just that, that like then someone who hears her being honest about that and you being honest about the things you're being honest with that then gets pregnant or then goes through that and is like, oh yeah, okay, cool. I'm not alone. Yeah, exactly. There's also like this, I find this surprising liberation in just deciding you're normal. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. there's just this, you know, like what, and, or just asking yourself, like, what if this experience is normal? Like, what if I can take my own judgment out of this just to try it on for size? Like what happens if this is actually normal? What happens then if I can talk about it with less shame? Um, because I believe that it's kind of on the spectrum of normal. It's incredibly liberating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, even that word normal, I think is problematic in a lot of ways, but oh, we're both obviously totally. using it to like get to a point of, Hey, what if everyone's lived experience is valuable because it is. And you know, that if we had more freedom to just talk about that, because there might be something that you share that's really specific to, you know, maybe your motherhood experience that maybe the three people that you tell can't relate to, but it doesn't mean that they won't have their own thing to share. And it just feels good to be heard. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. And there's, there's a, there is kind of this sort of 
there's so much, um, you know, guilt and fear of judgment and, and all kinds of layers upon, you know, a lot of experiences, but, but the motherhood experience is, is one where I think it's really heightened. So even when you're in a group of, you know, women that you may feel really comfortable with, um, it doesn't always all come out. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, I mean, yeah, cause to your point from before, there's a lot of fear of judgment, right. Of, totally. you know, whatever. And I think just like watching from afar at how opinionated people are about pregnancy and motherhood related things, like this is the way you have to do it. And if you don't do it this way, you're doing it wrong. Like there's a, there is a lot of shamey behavior. So that then leads to more secrecy around things. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's something that I tend to like, I, you know, I really, um, as a doula, I love to reinforce that with women sort of in the birthing process, that idea of sovereignty and autonomy, like you get to make the decisions. This is actually your body, your baby, your birth. Um, you get to make those choices. And sometimes I think, no, not sometimes all the time. I think that when, when that our birth experiences can kind of model for us or be, um, sort of this very intense, uh, like prototype of what the motherhood experience might possibly be. And so if we can support women in that birth experience and we can support them to, um, to make choices that feel good for them and, um, to feel autonomous, um, in their decision-making, then I feel like that supports them to also then later when they're making parenting choices to say, yes, this is right for me. And, um, and it doesn't matter what you think. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. I think that that's true in a lot of contexts, sort of the fine line between, educating yourself and like you said you know having a mentor or teachers or getting the information that you need about something that's unfamiliar right if you've never raised a child before had a child before yeah sure there's probably some stuff you need to learn and but it's like I think that there is there's a line between acquiring enough information and you know intentional information from helpful sources versus giving all your power away and like not uh, having any of that sovereignty that you just mentioned exactly and there's a sort of third layer of nuance there which is our own intuition. So I feel like we often tend to like Google ourselves out of our ability to, to parent from intuition and birth from intuition. And like, you know, that can be applied to all other areas of our lives, but, um, but that we actually tend to value or, or maybe place too much value, um, on, you know, what we Google and the information, the books that we read, um, which is helpful. Like I'm, I'm all about taking an evidence-based approach to, um, to birth and parenting and everything. Um, and also, you know, if it's replacing your ability to listen to what feels right to you, then that's not so hot either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think that's great advice. So you mentioned before that one of the key things that you do to support women in this transition is sort of listing out some specific things like that they might be able to expect, right? Like, hey, you might feel this way. And I think that you mentioned sort of the the grieving process as one of those. Can you share a couple other specifics to that you tell women to hopefully avoid the like, well, no one told me it was going to be like this feeling? Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. So with, um, yeah, there's a couple, there's a couple good ones. So, so with partnered couples, um, I tend to have a lot of conversations around, um, just sort of what the role dynamics tend to look like in the postpartum period. Um, so, um, and, and sometimes it depends a little bit on whether or not a woman is breastfeeding. Um, I do a lot of sort of breastfeeding support. A lot of my clients do choose to breastfeed. And so that's kind of the context that I work in, um, primarily, but you know, a, a lot of couples, um, really, um, sort of value their equality, 
you know, we do in our relationships, like we both do the dishes or whatever. Um, and, and in early parenthood, um, it is nothing is quite equal. It's like you have, you each have a lot to do and they're very different jobs. Um, so mama often does do a lot of the baby care. And if you're breastfeeding, it's like, you're kind of the person, um, for that baby. And there's sometimes admittedly, um, not a lot that the other partner, um, can do in the same way. And it's challenging because the, the, you know, mama feels like, you know, she wishes she might, you know, she could have a little bit more autonomy, maybe, um, even physical space. And yet oftentimes babe just really, you know, they're hardwired to want to be with their mothers. So it can be really hard to separate, um, babe from mama. And so, you know, the idea that, Oh, you know, I'll, I'll take the baby for three hours in the baby carrier or something. So you can have a nap. Um, doesn't always pan out. And so <laughs> that's a real reality check. Like a lot of people kind of strategize, like this is how our life is going to be. And, and it's often not quite that way. And also that, that, um, you know, mamas have this really quite well-defined role with their baby, um, in that early postpartum and the, you know, other partner often doesn't, the other partner often has to figure it out and that usually takes longer than they want it to. <laughs> um, and so it can be, it can be quite challenging in that regard. Um, so that's kind of something that I, that I tend to talk to people a lot about. And also another one that I think, you know, no one ever tells you this is going to happen is the shift in the dynamics of your other relationships. Um, and so, um, you know, mothers and mothers-in-law are, you know, very kind of common examples of, um, you know, it, sometimes, that those relationships sort of maybe meet your expectations or, um, you know, fluidly transition, um, as well. And then sometimes they, they don't. And I think we often forget that like grandmothers, for example, are transitioning as well from being, you know, mother to grandmother. And so there are some dynamics there that can be really, um, challenging to navigate. And I find that that's something that not a lot of women talk about. And yet, um, it seems to happen to a lot of us. Mm -hmm. So this is totally a selfish question, but I guess all my questions on this podcast are selfish because it's my podcast. So (laughs) let's just just roll with that. Um, speaking, yeah, right. Speaking from your own experience, because you mentioned before, um, how, you know, culturally, I don't know if culture is the right word, that um, there isn't necessarily that same support network that maybe they're used to or that maybe there is in other cultures, you know, obviously specifically talking about like Western North America, right? Um, Around that. So I don't know um, if you can speak from your own experience or something that you've seen with women that you work with. um, Mostly like advice or thoughts for those support people, like not necessarily the partner in a partnered Mm -hmm. couple, but like I'm thinking of for me specifically as like as a childless person and because there's a limit to like how much you can understand without it being your lived experience. But if you want to be supportive of your friends who are new moms and, you know, like obviously you can ask them what they need, whatever, but um, is there anything that you would want to share of either something that you did receive and really appreciated or that you wished you would have received um, sort of like how to be that support network in a real way on an ongoing basis, especially 
you know, when you were talking about, you know, this transition can take two to three years. I think that with transitions, we're really impatient. Like we want it to sort of just like go back to status quo or like get back to the categories of like what we understand pretty quickly. I think the same is true. Like when someone's in grief over a death, like, well, aren't you over that yet? Right. Like there's like an appropriate amount of time to like be a frazzled new mom. And then like people are impatient. So that was kind of a mouthful that I just gave you, but any thoughts or anything that you want to speak to about how to be a good support person? That is so true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, there's so many levels of this. Like there's, there's like the really pragmatic support, like bring food, <laughs> you know, um, in, especially in those early days, um, postpartum, but then, yeah, like, I think you spoke to it that this transition might take two three years and, um, and like just allowing, um, a new mom that space to, um, you know, not have it all figured out and to kind of work that through if, you know, if you're the kind of support person who can kind of, you know, just chat with them and just hold that space for them to say the things that are going unsaid. I think that that's huge. Also, um, I think, uh, you know, I have some like fairly unpopular advice that, you know, and I kind of touched on it earlier that babes are hardwired and children are hardwired to be with their parents. Um, and they, you know, they exhibit a stress reaction when they're separated from their parents, especially in those really, really early days. And, you know, they build resilience as they get older, but, but even older children are, you know, don't have the full, you know, neurological functioning to be able to say, it's okay, my mom will be back and, and all of that kind of thing. And so, but a lot of the time, um, I think we tend to kind of swoop in and say, clearly this baby is a problem for you and you need to be separated in some way. So, so I hear, you know, two weeks postpartum, you know, when was the last time you're on a date night or maybe you should just go for a pedicure. And like, it's that, it's that kind of, um, you know, sort of ideas that we have of what self-care might look like for a new mother. Um, and oftentimes I find that, you know, things that involve separation from their babe, um, although it seems like, oh, well, you know, maybe you could just go and get some rest or go and like have some time to yourself seems like a great idea. And oftentimes it's really anxiety producing for a lot of mamas, because again, we're not, we're not built to be apart from our babies. Um, and that's like this crazy conundrum because sometimes when it's full on and you've been up all night and you've been, you know, holding a little tiny creature for hours on end, you know, maybe what you feel like you do want to do is to kind of get some separation. And yet it has this sort of effect of, of being a bit stressful often. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of like well-meaning grandparents and friends will say, Oh, let me hold the baby while you, whatever, go do this thing. Um, or why don't you get out and, you know, go do something for yourself. And, and yes, and there's other ways to, um, to nourish yourself and care for yourself. And, um, that, that may feel more aligned, um, in that early postpartum period, um, where you can actually be with your baby and, and find ways to nourish yourself with your Mm -hmm. baby. Mm -hmm. I love that. So you were talking about before how, um, when you had your first child, that it was, this isn't the terminology that you used, but it seemed like the way you were describing it, that it was sort of like a, the first domino that fell that then created some other significant transitions. Can you yeah. tell that story of, um, I mean, I guess maybe sort of like set the scene for us, like how old you are and what you were doing and, you know, sort of like what those transitions, because I know you went through some bigger changes um, on the heels of that. 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, well, setting the stage, like leading up to the birth of my baby, um, I had mentioned before I was sort of, I had, you know, graduated with this master's degree and I was working in the public service and kind of not loving the work. So I was primed for a, for a change anyways. Um, and so when I was pregnant with my daughter, I did a lot of soul searching, um, not necessarily around like, hey, I'm having a kid, but like, hey, I'm, I'm going through a big life shift. I'm, it's going to happen. So what else can change? Like, let's just throw everything up in the air. Um, and so I was doing a lot of thinking about like what actually just, you know, and it, it, the idea of starting a business was really super vague at that point. I don't even know if I could have really articulated it. Um, but I wanted to do something that I loved. And I wanted to kind of get back in touch with what I love to do. Um, because I'd sort of like lost it along the way a little bit. Um, and so here in Canada, we're blessed with a year long maternity leave, or I was blessed with a year long maternity leave. So I had some time to figure myself out a little bit. Um, not saying that I wasn't like completely busy with my young baby daughter. Um, but I had a lot of time, you know, staring out the window at two o'clock in the morning to think about my life and think about what I wanted to do next. Um, and weirdly, what what I decided to do was just a tiny little thing. I I um I wanted to get back to writing because I had always loved to write, and I had not written in a very long time on a regular basis, but wanted some kind of accountability around it, and wanted a creative outlet. And I started a food blog, um, and that's kind of I I you know worked at this food blog for my whole year long maternity leave with my daughter I was so creatively fulfilled. And so it was starting to like nudge at some of what I wanted to change in my life. Um, and it opened up some possibilities for me. Like I, I discovered that there were people in the world who made a living online and I was like, wow, cool. Um, that's kind of neat. And so it opened up this door to me that I wasn't completely expecting what I just wanted to do is like make good food, take pictures of it and write, um, which I did. And so when I returned to work after that year with my daughter, that's when, as I'd mentioned before, like it just, it kind of felt, um, like stickier. Like it was just, uh, I, c I couldn't, um, you know, I think, uh, people told me that I should expect the first couple of months of, you know, dropping my daughter off to daycare every day and, and, you know, being apart from her, um, you know, I, I was kind of, I knew to expect that to be challenging, but there was something my intuition kind of told me, like it was, it was more challenging and more difficult for me. And it didn't go away after a couple of months. It didn't feel right to me. Um, and, and mostly it didn't feel right because I was not doing work that I love to do. Like I just was totally bored <laughs> and, and, and felt like I was, you know, being underutilized in my job and was, you know, also kind of had my eyes open to what might be possible if somebody discovered my food blog and offered me a cookbook deal or something. <laughs> and, and so anyways, it was kind of a funny start to, to like the beginnings of my curiosity around what might be possible. So, um, I started to kind of, you know, nudge at different aspects of, of what could happen. So, um, between, I guess it was, how I don't remember how long I was back to work, um, after my daughter was born, but I was offered a, a 
uh, a year long position um, that I could take a leave from my public service job with um, and not have to like quit entirely. But this position was working um, at a volunteer doula program as the coordinator of that program for a year. Um, and it's like a little nonprofit and it was going to require, um, it was going to be, you know, a 50% pay cut basically, and no benefits. Um, and so it was like this, me kind of dipping my toe into um, what would happen if I didn't make as much money and what would happen if I, you know, um, relied on my husband's benefits from his work instead of having my own, like would I, you know, and, and are we still able to maintain our lifestyle? And, and it was sort of a safe experiment in a way because it was a year and I'd be able to go back to my other job. Um, and so, and then during that time I got pregnant with my second kiddo. Um, and so once again, and, and during this time I was like still nudging it, like, what do I want to do? I was, you know, I had been kind of compiling these lists and, and you, you know, we've talked about how kind of like weirdly diverse my business is. I was compiling these lists of things that I love to do. I had this food blog. I knew that I loved to write. I didn't think I was going to be a food blogger forever, but, um, what else could I possibly do? I had this doula business, like what, you know, what can I do with that? And I was being very uncompromising about like, I didn't, I didn't want to, you know, quote unquote, just be a doula. That wasn't the full spectrum of what I wanted to do in the world. Um, I didn't want to quote unquote, just be a writer. Like there was more to what I wanted to do than that. So there was a lot of brainstorming going on during this whole time frame. And then I had, um, I had my son and really started to kind of, you know, um, actually it was really about a month after I birthed him, I birthed my business. Um, after having finally kind of sorted out, you know, what, what is the work that I want to try to do in the world and, you know, started to grow my business in the year that I was off with him. And, um, when I, when I, that year long maternity leave was over, I, I did quit my sort of public service job, but I went to, um, the back to the same nonprofit organization and this time working as a pre and postnatal educator. So it was, I quit the job. I quit the like golden handcuffs corporate style job, but went to something that was, you know, it was, a, a, you know, again, lower pay. Um, and it was still like kind of experimental. It was still nudging at like, can I do this? Can we do this? I don't know. Um, and, and then, you know, after about 18 months, I managed to quit that job as well and um, kind of step into working for myself full time. So it was this kind of convoluted process. There were two babies born in in the mix. Um, and it was really like I had this this vision and it was a, it was as clear as day. And it started when hmm, probably shortly after I my daughter started going to daycare. It was like one or two, maybe years old. This very clear vision that when she went to school, I wanted to be able to pick her up from school at the end of the day and drive her home and bake cookies. And like, maybe not every day, but you know, sort of <laughs> that was like this idea that I had that like, I would be there for her after school. I'd be just more present in my kids' lives. And I turned it into a hashtag cookies in September <laughs> as this. And it was just this really like, tangible goal that I had. And, 
Um, and that was sort of what was, you know, the undercurrent, like it was, yes, it was about finding work that I wanted to do. And also it was about living the kind of life that I wanted to live and being the kind of mom for my kids that I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's so much good stuff in there. I think like what's coming through most strongly for me is this sort of idea that again, what, like what you were saying about the two to three year transition into motherhood alone, that like change takes time. And I think yeah. especially when, you know, in the, and this has obviously come up on the podcast before, and I think it just like bears repeating again that, you know, especially in the world of any kind of online business or like creative entrepreneurship, there can very easily be a myth and a myth for a reason. Cause I think that a lot of people sort of perpetuate this, that like, oh, I just decided I was going to do this. And then I just followed my dream and then I did it. And I think that there's a lot of comfort in hearing your story of, okay, well, you had a year long maternity leave. Like, first of all, a year's a long time, right? Like a lot of people don't even want to wait a year to do whatever their change is. And then going back to work and then trying a different work that wasn't as much money, but was more in the direction of what you wanted that was more stable than doing your own thing, but still like, okay, so there's like a bridge job, right? Or like a transition thing. And then, okay, what would this look like to do it myself? And then what, and then all told, like that's, multiple years that you just described. And I think that it's so easy for that to sort of get lost in translation when we're reading someone's like about page or bio or whatever, you know, well, I used to do this and now I do this. And again, we think of it as like a light switch thing. Like, well, then I had a baby and now I'm a mom. And sure, like that's true. And also that change takes time. And I think it's just always like, we can't hear the truth about people's experiences with this kind of stuff enough. Not to say that someone couldn't start a business in a shorter time frame, right? Of course, it's different for different people, but I don't know. There's just like always something really nice because I think it's really easy to get stuck in the like, I'm the only one for whom this is taking a long time to get traction or to get clarity. And so therefore there must be something wrong with me when actually when you like pull apart the threads of people's stories, I think that in some form, what you just shared is like universally relatable. Totally. And there's two things there. There's the first is that like we, you're right. We, we totally deify the idea of taking a leap. And I actually had a lot of, um, when I, my business started to grow and pick up and I wasn't being, um, I wasn't being elusive, but I wasn't talking about the fact that I had a full-time job, you know, like I just didn't think it was important, um, to put a ton of energy into talking about my full-time job. Um, and I felt, and I also felt this like shame that like, you know, will it look like my business is unsuccessful if I need to have a full-time job also to make this work? And, um, and I found it really hard to, I mean, I did talk about it, but it was also, um, you know, I, I, it felt really edgy for me. And I think it, it, it was sort of in my own mind and, and there's this narrative of, um, you know, if, if you can't take a leap, then you must not be courageous enough to take that leap or your business must suck. Yeah. I mean, well, to, I mean, to your point that I think we have such a narrow definition of success that, you know, success with a business that you start yourself, the only way that it's truly successful is if it completely replaces your full-time income. Like, and sure that might be yeah. the goal or whatever, but there's lots of different ways to have something feel successful. Like, is it creatively fulfilling? Is it what you wanted to do with, you know, this part-time amount of hours per week? I mean, I think about this and I've talked about this all the time in the context of the podcast that this has been like really slow organic growth. I don't work full-time and, you know, that that might change in the future with like some vision of stuff that I have, but it doesn't, it's like, I think it dishonors the work that we do if it's sort of like, oh, well, sure. Yeah. But it's only part-time or like, you know, for you, like, yeah, I have this business and it's growing, it's going well, but like, oh, but I also have a, a, like a day job. Okay. That's awesome. Like whatever we have to do to sort of like make ends meet and fulfill all of our different needs, because steady money is also a need. Creative fulfillment is a need and they don't always 
come from the same place, you know? And I think if there was less taboo around that, then it leaves people more free to just try stuff and experiment with things and like not feel this weird shame and like feel like they need to pretend that whatever they're doing online is their full-time thing. It's totally true. Yeah. And also it, it touches on this idea that I, um, I, you know, in my work with women around other transitions in their lives, um, I have come to believe, and I mean, I work primarily with women, so that's kind of my frame, um, that I, that I come at this with, but I, I think that people in general, but women specifically have, um, a really complex constellation of um, roles and responsibilities at play um, in their lives and, and cultural narratives and all kinds of things that impact their ability to, um, to make transition. And so, you know, for example, for me, you know, I was a mom of two kids, um, you know, had a partner, like, oh my goodness, none of this happens in a vacuum. Like I, you know, my partner had to be on board with this. We had a a house and a mortgage, like I, you know, and there's, and there's, you know, cultural narratives and, and even, um, family narratives that impact, um, you know, my ability to kind of fully step into this change. And, um, it's not that, it, they l- will limit me necessarily. They may limit some people. Um, and, and we have to kind of acknowledge that, but also that they're there. And so it's not just, oh, I took this leap um, or I did this big thing or I was like courageous enough. Actually, there's just a whole bunch of other things that are at play that, you know, as human beings, we need to navigate and mm-hmm. We shouldn't shit on ourselves for that. Yeah, I think that's really well said. I think that simult- courage is simultaneously undervalued and overvalued, meaning that like, yeah, mm. like it does take courage to do something that's uncomfortable, right? And like that you can't be courageous if you're not you know, willing to be uncomfortable. And this stuff doesn't happen without sort of like a stepping into the unknown, which like always is like a brave thing to do. And mm-hmm. also courage isn't enough. Like blind courage isn't enough that there are like logistical pieces to this kind of stuff too. And yeah, it's much sexier to boil it down into like, I was brave enough to like take the leap and the net will appear. And like, but what is that even, you know? <laughs> like, right. That's yeah. totally true. Um, yeah. So going back to what you said before, um, just that, you know, small vision that you shared about, you know, picking your daughter up from school and driving her home and baking cookies. And like that, that was a very clear, I think that you said of, you know, the kind of mom that you want to be or, you know, what you want to do with her. And I think that's a really specific example of um, sort of the changes that you're talking about, uh, you know, and that you made all seem to be a product of you wanting to live authentically, like in alignment with your values or, you know, whatever this vision is. Cause I could see someone hearing that vision and be like, oh, that's not what I want to do with my kids, right? Which is like clear totally. that it's something specific for you. And so, but I think like even words like that, like authenticity and values, they're thrown around a ton, like especially mm-hmm. these days to the point of becoming like cliche or empty. And so I would love, cause I, that was a really specific example that you shared. And I think that there's a lot of benefit of sharing sharing specific examples of like, not just this kind of like airy fairy, like my values are my family or, you know, kids or whatever, but to actually like get into what that looks like for you. And I think sometimes people are hesitant to do that because it can be polarizing, right? Like someone could hear something that I mean, like roll their eyes and be like, well, I would never want to do that. Okay, cool. That's not your value. Right. So I don't know. Is there something in there that you would like to share about um, maybe specifically what you realize that some of your values are or what it actually like meant for you? to live in alignment with them? 
Yeah, yeah. So it's, it, I totally agree that like even the concept of values, values and authenticity are, are huge. I am writing this blog post right now called Fifty Shades of Authenticity because it's like <laughs> nice. really like let's be real. It sometimes um, you know our, our truth today might change tomorrow when we learn something new or grow or, or change, um, and so it, it gets it. But it has this weightiness to it. The idea of values, the idea of authenticity, both have this weightiness like that. Um, you know, if I'm not living a certain way, then I'm just like betraying myself or something. And, and I think it actually, um, dissuades people from even considering what their values might be and what alignment with those values might look like. And I tend to, um, you know, it, and it's kind of like a, you know, my, my story is sort of a case in point of how I like to approach this in the sense that I just, I, you know, I encourage people to kind of nudge at what feels right what matters to you? Like what matters to you today? Um, what do you enjoy doing? Like what kind of, you know, makes your toes curl? Um, and, and it doesn't, you know, you don't need to create this big like mission statement, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? That, that it can be about, yeah, some of those very specific visions of like, yeah. So for me, the value around, um, around, you know, baking cookies with my daughter after school. I mean, we don't literally bake cookies together after school every day, but it's like, it's, it's one of being a present parent. Um, and I, I'm shitty at it sometimes for sure. Um, but it's sort of that touchstone of like, what would feel good in this moment? Like, how do I want to be, um, with my kids and just kind of breaking it down to like on a, on a day to day basis, how, what's in alignment for me today? What would feel good? Um, you know, what would, you know, allow me to finish this day feeling like it was well lived. Mm -hmm. I think that's an interesting and necessary perspective that I haven't heard articulated quite that way before this idea that like values aren't static because yeah, I think that there's a tendency to, yeah, make it too weighty or like, I have to figure out what my values are. And then like, this is my compass forever. And then like, these are my four values and they can never change. And like that, even that, like, it sounds like very daunting. I don't want to do it, you know? And maybe, maybe someone else does. And, you know, I'm all into the self-exploration. So I've certainly done a lot of values exercises. Um, and then even still like things change over time. So it's this idea of like continuing, like you said, to nudge closer to like whatever feels, I don't know. It's like, it's almost a hard thing to talk about because I think it's maybe difficult to articulate articulate, but easy to feel if you're honest with yourself, like what it feels like to be in or out of alignment. Like we know what it feels like to be like, it's just like kind of icky. Like my friend Alex describes it as like that you feel like you're wearing a wet paper bag, like all (laughs) over your body. It's just kind of like, you just want it off. Like you're not going to die from it, but like, it's just, you know, and we, we know what that feels like. Yeah. And also I think that, um, that sometimes we, lack the skills to know I'm trying to like figure out how to articulate this because this is like the first time I'm thinking about um but lack the skills to know what feels aligned to us like a classic example is um you know a lot of us are kind of like living from the shoulders up right (laughs) we don't really pay a lot of attention to our bodies and our bodies hold a tremendous amount of wisdom as to like what feels good, what feels aligned and, and our values will often show up in our bodies. But if we're not, if we don't have the sort of ability and even, and the skills really to like pay attention, Oh, you know, um, 
whenever I feel like uh, lonely or, or sad or upset, I get this big like cave feeling in my chest. <laughs> and, and that's a sign for me that something's up that I need to pay attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's things like that, that, um, you know, we, we, I think that we can kind of cultivate, um, almost as a way to make it easier to, to see when we're living in alignment or not. Yeah, yeah, totally. I also think that's um, an interesting place to start to pivot because I know that you just finished a book, right? About your own sort of process and Mm -hmm. journey of trying to find peace with your body. And so maybe we could talk about that a little bit. Like what made you want to write that book? Kind of what it's about? However you want to start that off would be awesome. Yeah, totally, totally. So so, um, generally, like the the work that I do with women is around reclaiming their their authenticity their sort of that sort of true north um for themselves and a lot of that is about dismantling um you know cultural norms and sort of societal pressures and external expectations around what life is meant to look like so you know career is a great example of how we kind of have some you know markers of success that we pursue and then realize like, Oh, actually I don't really give a shit about that. And, and so I use the same principle and applied it to my body. (laughs) So, um, so I have struggled, um, with my weight. Um, I've always been a larger person since I was a very small person since like five or six years old is probably the first time I remember being aware, um, that I was larger bodied and, Um, you know, through my teens and twenties and early thirties, like did a lot of uh, disordered eating and a lot of disordered, um, exercise and, you know, just trying to kind of navigate this. And when I had my second baby, um, I hit kind of that catalyzing moment, that rock bottom of, holy crap, I feel like I'm, I don't feel like I'm even living in my body. Like I don't recognize this physical form anymore, which is sort of the ultimate in misalignment, right? Like (laughs) I don't even know who this is. And also I was unwilling to do the things that I had done before dieting and exercise, namely, um, because I, they didn't work for me. And, uh, and we they don't, dieting doesn't work. Of, they don't work for anyone. Pain, so. <laughs> anyone. Exactly. Yes. And so, and so I applied, um, you know, very pragmatically really applied some of the same principles that I've, that I've always used. And then I, and then I, you know, support women within my coaching practice. I was like, okay, so, so we've got this thing. I feel like, I don't feel like I belong in my body. And how can we nudge at like what's possible here and how can we start to experiment with, um, you know, what would it be like to come back into this body to find, um, acceptance and respect and maybe even love, um, for my body. And so it was about two years ago that I started this process of just like nudging at these little things that I thought might impact my relationship with my body. And then in sort of like a meta aspect of all of this I was writing but at the same time totally didn't mean to write a book really unintentional which is I know people who like struggle over writing books are gonna hate me Um, but it, it really was like completely unintentional it was it was I wanted to document the process 
um, so that I could, you know, similar to, you know, how we do in your journal, um, so that I could kind of make sense of it as I went. And, um, and yeah, so over a two year time frame, um, it was interesting the way it started out for me and I wrote the book in real time. So it kind of, it's kind of interesting because it takes a turn, um, in the middle of the book. You know, I, I think when I first started writing it, I really did think that I was going to become a smaller person somehow. Um, I sort of, I think I anticipated that, you know, the acceptance that I had for my body was going to come by having a different body. Hmm. That's a very honest thing to say, right? It's, it's almost like the, okay, well, if you've accepted that, you know, let's say dieting, you know, that type of exercise, whatever, like once you've accepted, okay, I'm not willing to do that anymore. That doesn't work. I'm going to try this other thing. And I feel like this is so common. I've heard similar things from other people too, both on and off the podcast that like, you're trying this other thing that's like, hopefully going to be like better for you, but still kind of hoping for the same result. Do you know what I mean? That it's like, I I still am hoping for, you know, this smaller body, just like via this other, I don't know, like maybe I'm not, I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but what you just said, I feel like is very honest because there's like, I think it sounds nice to be like, and then I, you know, decided to opt out of diet culture and like totally accepted everything and like, ta-da, the end. And I think that that's not very realistic for most people. There's like phases. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And it, it probably, it wasn't until I was about halfway through this journey that I actually started kind of uncovering, um, a lot of the body positivity and health at every size literature. And I was like, it was floored me. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was at that point that I was able to say, Oh, okay, no, I am actually totally opting out of this. And it wasn't, it became, um, this sort of this sense of misalignment that I thought was kind of all about me and my own experience of my body became a lot bigger where I realized that I was sort of in this larger culture of, um, you know, diet culture that I, I kind of didn't fully realize how incredibly pervasive it was and how much it had affected me and also how damaging, um, you know, because I really did I think believe that like somehow I was going to find like a diet that would work for me, quote unquote, bigger mm-hmm, quotes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it wasn't, it was about halfway through the book that I was like, Oh fuck this. Like, <laughs> it was yeah. really just this moment of, Oh wow. Okay. So actually that's not going to work. And, and also um, this has turned into something really different. Like this is about me um, shifting cultural narratives and the, like the way that they impact me but then also having the opportunity to say, to kind of open up those doors for conversation um, through writing this book as well. And so it took this dramatic turn and, uh, and I'm so thankful for it. Um, and so, it, you know, my, my process changed. And I mean, now um, the end of the book, um, you know, I'm not living in a smaller body at all and, and okay with it. Um, in a way that I probably, I just wasn't expecting this outcome, I guess, when mm-hmm. I first started writing the book, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's like such an interesting point, uh, outside of just like, you know, body acceptance or body love or whatever terminology we want to use, just the idea mm-hmm. of like acceptance and love in general, like when it's conditional versus when it's unconditional, that it's one thing to be like, I'm going to be on this journey to accepting whatever the thing is, as long as the thing fits these parameters that I've like, I can accept it as long as X, Y, and Z are true, right? Like that's not the same as like, okay, I'm going to find peace with this regardless. And yeah, that those aren't the same. 
Yeah. Yeah. And one thing I think what's, you know, what I kind of discovered, I, I was um, struggling with writing the last literally a few paragraphs of my book. Um, and it took me months because I felt like I needed to, uh, there was, um, there was a new outcome that I thought I needed to reach, which was this, like, I look in the mirror every day and I'm like, wow, damn, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, this kind of like deified vision of what body positivity or body love might look like. Um, and I wasn't there yet. So I was like, well, I guess I'm not finished writing this book yet. And, um, and I kind of just, it sat and it sat and it sat and I was like, man, you know, what do I have to do to have that day come? Like I I'm, I'm at this you know, point where I don't want my body to be a different size anymore, but I don't necessarily like look in the mirror and do a happy dance. And it was at that point that I realized, uh aha, okay. So, you know, I, I still live in a world that, um, you know, where my body shape is not, you know, considered to be, I don't know, ideal. Um, and I'm still not always represented, not always, maybe never, um, represented in the media that I see. I still have a hard time, you know, finding clothes. That's like the, a horrible experience is going clothes shopping. Um, I will never get to participate in my friends, like clothing swaps. There are experiences that I will continue to have in my body, no matter how much I love it, mm-hmm. um, that make it hard to live in my body. Um, and when I, it was like a, like kind of a light went off for me. I was like, oh, okay. So I don't have to want to do a happy dance, um, every time I look in the mirror, um, because I I feel like I'd have to just, you know, live in a cave for that Mm -hmm. to be the case. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there will be a day where I do. Um, but, but also I, you know, it was, it was about giving myself a ton of self-compassion and saying, you know, you've come a really long way and it's also challenging to live in a world that doesn't think you belong for Mm -hmm. certain reasons. You know? Yeah, that's beautifully said. I think that it, it sort of goes back to some of the things we were talking about before about like having, you know, really specific or narrow definitions of like either success or when we were talking about you're having a baby, it's supposed to only feel this one joyful way, right? Like anytime we yeah. put these like tight, tight boundaries on like, this is what self-love looks like or whatever. And if we've said that that can only be considered successful, if it's every time I look in the mirror, I'm like the most elated possible. First of all, I mean, if that does happen for folks, like great. I guess like email us both your secrets, but I think that that's relatively unrealistic. And I also think it's kind of unproductive and like unhelpful. Again, we're not robots, right? Like, so it's being able to take that pause and be like, well, hang on. What if I'm able to open up and be like less rigid on what, you know, quote unquote success looks like for this. And like you said, like give yourself like more compassion and grace around that. And I always think that it's worth sort of digging into because a lot of the times, I think that we don't choose, consciously choose those definitions of success, right? That like the cultural one of success means having this like small body, okay, then gets replaced with, okay, the success of body positivity is loving myself in this very specific way, right? That it's like all of them Mm -hmm. are kind of like things that we're given or that are put on us. And that I think that there's a lot of empowerment in taking a step back and being like, okay, well, what if it's not that narrow? And what if I define this for myself? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's, um, yeah, it's, it, it kind of it sort of reminds me of that earlier, like, what if I'm normal? Like, what if, what if this is okay? What if yeah. it's okay for me to like be grateful and appreciative and respectful of my body and still like not enjoy being in a bathing suit? You mm-hmm. know what I mean? 
it's not going to stop me, but, but you know, um, yeah. Yeah. It's like leaving room for all of it. Like that. Yeah. You can feel grateful and you can feel better than maybe you did before. And also it can still be an anxiety producing experience, like getting invited to a clothing swap or whatever example that you want to use. Like there's room for all of that to be true. And it doesn't mean that you're failing at, you know, like self-acceptance work if, you know, one time out of every, however many times, you know, so Yeah, yeah, it's true. And I think like, there's that whole, you know, the body positivity movement kind of like whitewashes that whole nuance to the experience. Like we're not erasing, um, the entire culture that, you know, kind of believes that small bodies are ideal bodies. Right. Um, and so we still have to live in that context and, and it's okay for it to be challenging. Mm-hmm. So I know that something else that you're really passionate about um, is the power of reconnecting, not just with our bodies, but with the earth. And mm-hmm. I would love for you to share the impact that doing that has had on everything that you were just talking about. So on this like body reclamation journey, sort of where did it fit in for you to be you know, spending more time outside or getting more in touch with wild places? Like what's the yeah. sort of tie in there? Yeah, it's so interesting. It's um, It's been something I've been thinking about lately and I think it's like my thoughts are still like generating on it but um with through my through my 20s um I I talked about how I was like a pretty extreme overexerciser. I was like I was the ultimate in like being the gold star girl so like I I um actually went from having a really like relatively sedentary childhood although my childhood um I grew up in a small town in the middle of a beautiful provincial park, um, in central Canada. And so we actually lived an outdoors lifestyle. Like it was, you know, every day we were outside. Um, and so, you know, all of that came very much second nature to me, but as I kind of, you know, um, actually it was, I'll tell you a very specific example. When When I was 16 years old, um, I went whitewater rafting with my dad. And so I had, you know, we'd grown up outside, but I was like, I was the kid at recess who was like writing a novel while all the other kids were, I was like, you know, playing dodgeball around me. And so I was, I was this pretty, pretty kind of sedate child. Um, and, and so my dad and I went whitewater rafting when I was 16 years old. It was totally spontaneous decision. And we were on the last rapid of the day and, um, it was like a five plus and our boat flipped and it was this horrifying ride down this whitewater, like angry whitewater rapid. And at the end of it, I mean, I was terrified. I was worried. I didn't know where my dad was and we found each other. And then like very shortly thereafter, I was like, Whoa, I can do cool things. And that was just kind of the beginning of it all. So I spent the vast majority of my twenties, um, doing cool things and pushing my body in the context of the outdoors. So this is my relationship with the wild, right? Um, so I, um, you know, did triathlons and marathons. I, um, in my late twenties, I, um, broke a world record for, um, the fastest swim across the Northumberland straight from New Brunswick to PEI. It's a 13 kilometer swim. Um, and then three weeks later climbed Mount Kilimanjaro and like then went back to playing tackle football on my team, like a week after that. And, and I was like, 
maniacal um, adventure person. And, um, and that was my relationship with being in the outdoors. And it was a place, but it was a place where, so it wasn't bad. It was a good thing in a way, because it, it was a place where I learned what I was made of. Like I would, I learned what was possible um, in this body that I had kind of, you know, grown up thinking couldn't, do cool stuff and then all of a sudden it could um and and you know it really tested me and offered me a place to to challenge myself um and that was great and also you know I I kind of you know I injured myself I I overdid it a lot and um and ended up you know as I you know, got pregnant with my kids and sort of slowed down physically. Um, you know, I surfed through my first pregnancy, (laughs) but, but ultimately like I needed to kind of, I needed to slow down. My body slowed down. My body got bigger. Um, and there was this sort of different kind of wildness that I got introduced to as I became a mother and, um, slowed down. And also, you know, my injuries, like I couldn't, engage in the wild and in my sense of adventure in the way that I could in my twenties. And also I didn't really want to anymore. Like I just, it was that sort of similar, um, mindset shift that happened around my career that like, I actually, you know, I maybe did a couple of triathlons in my postpartum period with my daughter and, um, really didn't like love it at all. And it didn't give me the same, you know, I don't know, feeling of pride and satisfaction that it did before. And so I started to shift and realize that, um, you know, there was this whole other wildness that I was cultivating within me, um, my intuition and my, my tending of my family and my home, um, in, in ways that I had never, like could never have appreciated in my twenties. Um, and there's just like magnificent slowing down. Like I spent a lot of time outside in those, you know, early postpartum days with my daughter and just noticing the land around me in a way that, you know, it wasn't to be conquered like it was before. Um, but rather that it was a place where I could like hear myself again. Um, and so it's, I think my approach to like wild places and adventure and the earth has softened significantly. Um, and I think it's given me access to parts of myself that I didn't have access to before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, so, and I'm, in sh- I'm sure that that informs the work that you do because you lead like adventure retreats and stuff, right? That's part of your work. I do. Yeah, I do. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, it's true. And it's funny because when I first started doing that, um, it was very much about like, let's see if we can kind of <laughs> put people through their paces and help them feel proud of themselves afterwards. Like it was very much, um, my model of what an adventure retreat would be was very much the model of my twenties, right? Like, um, you know, if you can do this hike, you'll feel really proud and, and you'll feel like you can do anything and, and it'll be awesome. Um, and, and now I, you know, my approach is, has shifted quite significantly and it is about, um, like what would happen if you, you know, went back to the earth, um, without actually that sounded really cheesy, but, <laughs> but, but it's true. Like what would happen if you sort of, you know, it, 
um, cut yourself off of all of these sort of influences that we have on our day to day, like, you know, our electronics, our just our, our responsibilities and, um, and, and literally got quiet enough and dark enough to hear yourself again. Um, and what might happen in the rest of your life if you took that opportunity? Um, and yes, yes, challenge, um, you know, is a, is a beautiful way to kind of discover yourself. And, and we often, you know, the things that we have going on in our life are often, you know, mirrored and magnified when we're going through challenges, you know, like, <laughs> you know, the way you talk to yourself in the everyday is, is, you know, magnified 10 times when you're struggling up a hill, you know, you, you might not realize that you're being self-deprecating, for example, on a regular basis. And then, and then you're, you know, you're having a hard time hiking up a hill and then you realize that your, your self-talk is like, damn it. Like, why aren't you, why can't you do this? What's wrong with you? Or maybe your self-talk is awesome way to go like rah 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 and and i feel like a lot of our sort of our ways of being are magnified um in those experiences in a way that allows us to look at them a little bit more mhm yeah i totally agree with that i love hearing other people talk about their sort of relationship to nature and the outdoors and outdoor adventure. I mean, obviously, because that's something that I'm interested in too, but only recently, right? Like only in the last couple of years. And I think even within the like outdoor activity adventure world, again, I mean, I feel like an unexpected theme of this is talking about sort of like narrow definitions of success. Like I do think mm-hmm. that there, that we'd put on a pedestal sort of the, um, intense athletic feats, um, you know, whether it's like the super long distance swim or like the really long through hikes or, you know, so, which of course I'm interested in too. And it's sort of funny to reflect on, okay, yeah, everything that you just said is totally true about the value that you can get from challenging yourself. And if you have the privilege of being able to, you know, physically do something like that, like, yeah, there's like a lot to be learned and that's a huge part of it for me. But can I also open up space like to not be like quite so hard with it, like to even look at the language choices. Like I think that the word that you used um, is really important about like not looking at as like conquering the land, right? Like sort of even getting out of that terminology of like, okay, I'm not actually, that's not what I want to do, right? Like here to like conquer and crush and all the (laughs) sort of like very like colonizing language, right? And it's like being able to, okay, if, if the outdoors is a place that you do want to challenge yourself physically and do like, that's awesome. And also that's not the only way to be in the outdoors. I think sometimes it's the same way with running that like, I used to run pretty seriously and I don't anymore. And I was used to hear people talk about, and I even went through this too, of like, oh, well, you know, I'm just doing a 5k, right. And like that there's just always this impetus and like importance put on like longer and harder and more and more. And that's fine if that's really what you want to do, but like, let's not make that the be all end all so that people are like, oh, like, yeah, I went on a hike, but like, it was really flat and it was like only a mile and a half. Okay. Like why, why the only, why the, you know what I mean? Like just opening up more space for appreciating like you said, like nature and being there and we know whatever that looks like and that it can look differently for lots of different people, whatever they want that sort of like relationship to be. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like, don't we all live in this tremendously goal oriented, like crush it kind of, you know, we get a lot of, um, you know, personal satisfaction and a lot of like, um, sort of positive feedback for doing that kind of stuff. And it's, and it's really, um, I wonder sometimes, um, if it's easier to do that than to get still with yourself 
and see what comes up when you're, you know, undistracted and when you're, you know, and, and so I, I wonder sometimes that, and then this will be different for each person and different for each, you know, time you go out. But, um, but when is the goal and the, the effort, a distraction from, something else that's going on for you. Yeah, I think those are wonderful questions. And I mean, again, personally, selfishly, like very timely because I've been sort of my reflection process. I feel like I can only understand how I feel from going from like one extreme to the other basically and then like finding somewhere in the middle. But, you know, for me, you know, once I started thinking more critically about all of this being like, oh, you know, maybe it's not the best to, you know, look at these like long hikes as this like super physical challenge and like how hard can I go and all these things. And I had to think about it to be like, actually, that really is an intrinsically valuable part of it for me. Like it is like, I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't sort of have a like pilgrimage quest type feel that comes at the end of something that's like very physically demanding and like creates a lot of fear and discomfort for me. So I'm like, okay, to your point from before, let's normalize that. Like, what if that's fine? Is there a less problematic way to do that? And like a less problematic way to talk about it even. And of course I have made mistakes and will continue to make mistakes of like sort of just like, yeah, checking the language around it and like not making it seem like this is the only way to do this experience. And mm-hmm. yeah, so all the questions you're asking are <laughs> like stuff that I'm thinking about a lot. So it's nice yeah, to hear someone totally. else's perspective. Totally. And it's also like about leaving, uh, leaving yourself enough space for it not to be true, uh, you know, mm-hmm. at, at, at some point or, or, you know, eventually like, you know, if your ability changes or if you, if you get injured or totally. like, you know, what happens if you're so hung up on the, on the, like the ability to, to kind of create these, you know, crucibles in which you test yourself, um, and come out a new woman or like, you know, or challenge yourself in some way, you know, how then do you, do you do that in other ways or how do you let go of that or how, or what, what was it about that that was so important? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That's because that's exactly what happened with me, you know, just ultimately the, I went so hard in my twenties, um, that I, you know, was quite severely injured and lived with a lot of chronic pain. And, and I just, you know, have no interest in like running, for example, anymore, because it just hurts a I mean, lot. Say, I have no, and that's, yeah, I have no interest really in running anymore. And there isn't like a direct tie in, you know, like I'm not running yeah. because X specific reason. And it's just, yeah, like not, I mean, the, I think the, the larger point that you're speaking to is really important of like, not, I don't know, overly identifying with one way of doing things and like appreciating stuff, but accepting that it might not be forever. And sure, this is like where my ability level is now. And maybe that won't be the case. And just, yeah, then nothing is as static as like sometimes we want it to be. Yeah. It's the same as those values. Like if your value is around adventure, then, and that was actually one thing that I really, like I really grappled with in my early motherhood. Like my, my adventures went from going on like a day long hike to like leaving the house without a diaper bag. There's some, right? Um, but like, what is the, what is it about adventure? Yeah. Or what is it about those physical challenges that is the value actually? Yeah. And also being able to get out of the mindset of it has to be all or nothing. Like it has to be, I think about this too with like with friends and with social stuff that like I can easily fall into the trap of thinking that a meaningful time spent with someone like that it has to be a whole day thing or a whole weekend or a big production. Whereas like if we like go hang out for like an hour, I always come out of it feeling like refreshed and better. And so sometimes I have to sort of talk myself off the ledge of like, not everything has to be a big deal. Like I don't actually have to be gone for four months or sit inside all the time. There's like, like I actually can go hiking for a couple hours and then come home. Like that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) So so is there anything uh, that hasn't come up so far in this conversation that you wanted to make sure that we talked about? 
gee, I don't know. We've covered like a huge. <laughs> I know. I feel like spectrum, that too. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's kind of how it is with uh, with <laughs> you know, the hands in every honeypot. So. <laughs> so there's nothing that you're like, oh, want to make sure that we do this before we wrap up. I don't think so. Okay, awesome. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, we did. We covered a lot. Um, So as you know, the way that we end these are with some rapid fire-ish questions um, Mm -hmm. that the Patreon community, the folks who support and fund the show, have basically put forward some questions um, for me to ask all eight guests this season. So I have seven random questions for you if you're down to answer seven random questions. I think so, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No pressure. Um, What's your favorite thing to eat for breakfast lately? Oh yeah, that changes often. But, um, right now, um, a couple of over easy eggs with like toast and you dip the corner of the toast in the yolk. Yeah. So good. What's, (laughs) what's the one thought that gives you the most butterflies right now? Like when you think about it, you get all excited and tingly and maybe even a bit nervous. But I think I actually just want to be an author. Oh, Yeah. Yeah. Um, this could turn into a whole side <laughs> podcast about how I feel exactly the same way. I like had this thought the other day that I'm like, literally the only thing that's ever been consistently true is that I want to be a writer, whatever that looks like. And then of course it's the thing that I don't do the most because there's like the most fear around it. I'm like, what if that's just like what I want to do anyway? Yes. I hear you. Um, <laughs> what's one belief or opinion that you've done a total 180 on something that you used to believe, but that you no longer do? Um, I think sort of what I had touched on earlier a little bit, but like this idea that, um, this whole concept of like, that I, that I need to meet like certain markers of success or goals really, um, that I I really don't kind of approach my life in that way anymore because I was realizing that it was, that it was limiting me. And also that, um, I was just, working too hard and missing out on a whole lot of other stuff, um, by just trying so hard. <laughs> and, and so, you know, and, and, in, in a, in a larger perspective, I've, I've really done this huge 180 on the idea of, um, like of having a purpose. So I used to, you know, like have this sort of purpose statement to my life. Um, and I really kind of, you know, changed my, my tune on that because I realized it was sort of this vestige of the idea that if I didn't have a purpose, then, you know, how would I know what my value was in this world? Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm, I'm like kind of sitting with greater comfort that I can just like wake up in the morning and have value in the world. And that I actually don't have to accomplish anything or I can do things that, um, that aren't sort of, um, you know, culturally acceptable or, you know, um, uh, defined, you know, measures of success and, and still be happy and be okay and be valuable. Mm-hmm. I love that. What's something that you're finding frustrating right now? Like maybe a particular thing or area of your life that, um, is feeling challenging. Hmm. I feel like social media is always like a double edged sword for me. I find it, um, you know, I am always trying to just speak my truth, um, as much as possible. And then also like very much aware of the sort of hype that vulnerability gets and, and Mm -hmm. this kind of idea of like, um, you know, sharing what feels good to share and what feels right for me to share. Um, and then also keeping some things private, um, and, yeah. And it's just sort of like struggling with sort of 
how to show up there um, in a way that feels authentic um, and aligned for me. Uh, and then also like kind of just, you know, witnessing <laughs> the rest of social media and like that, the impact that that has. Um, sometimes I feel like I just need to shut it all down, but mm-hmm. yeah, re- <laughs> relatable. Um, yeah. what's one thing that you consider worth splurging on? Books. Mm-hmm. I know me too. That's like, the, I'm like, okay, yeah, I can spend as much money as I want on my Kindle. Just go for it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so speaking of books, um, which two or three books, any kind of book, any genre can be related to stuff we've talked about or not, would you say have either had the biggest impact on you or that you recommend or reread most often? Mm, okay. So I love, um, if women rose rooted by Sharon Blackie, she, um, so she really, she, what she's done in that book is, is taken this kind of, um, journey that I think a lot of women and, and people in general, but I, you know, I work with women, um, that go through where they realize, you know, like I did, like we've talked about that sort of these externally defined markers of success are just not working for them anymore and going inwards and like re-identifying what matters to them and also connecting, with this sort of sense of wild feminine. So it's kind of like, uh, it's a little bit like women who run with the wolves, but the additional layer that I love is that she does this exploration through, um, Celtic mythology. And so I've been really aware of, um, of the ways in which like kind of the quote unquote spiritual community for lack of a better way of saying it. Um, and myself included have appropriated the practices and beliefs and ways of being of other cultures. Um, and, and it's, it's like an ongoing, um, exploration for me. And I think it's an ongoing problem in sort of the wider world that I'm engaged in. Um, and so I've been getting more and more curious about my, my Celtic roots. So this was, um, a really beautiful introduction into that, um, for me. So that's a lot of time spent on that one book. <laughs> what else would I recommend? Um, I love also, um, along the same lines, Dance of the Dissident Daughter by Sue Monk Kidd. So another story of a woman, um, reclaiming that sense of authenticity and alignment in herself. And I just, I think we can't get enough of, um, like the feminine narratives of this experience because as I talked about before, like it doesn't happen in a vacuum and we have this kind of ecosystem of, you know, cultural narratives and personal narratives that, that impact the way that we do that, um, realignment. So that's another beautiful story of that. And I'm trying to think if I have another one that I can think of off the top of my head right now. Um, not right now. Those okay. are two, like two big ones. Yeah. yeah. So the last question, if you could leave our community, the listeners with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take? Hmm. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, rest is the one that I've been like playing with a little bit more lately. And I'll be the first to say I'm kind of shitty at it, but like what would happen? I think we've, we've had this kind of thread all through our conversation. Like what would happen if you were still like, what would happen if you, um, you know, deleted the to-do list, deleted the shoulds, deleted the, um, you know, the expectations that you have of yourself and what might show up, um, 
and and what might happen and it's really challenging territory for i think for a lot of us and yet i think like on a cultural level it's more and more important for us um individually to start claiming that space for ourselves and um yeah so um what would happen if you experimented with rest mm, i love that what's the best place for people to find you and say hi do you have a favorite way to connect with new folks or um, yeah. people that might want to work with you or any of that yeah, for sure. So I have a website. Um, it's uh, my company name is Nalumana. So it's www.nalumana, N-A-L-U-M-A-N-A.com. And I am like a kind of ridiculously prolific writer. So I do actually blog there every week. Um, so that's a, a great place to, um, to find me. I love being on Instagram. And I also I'm on Facebook and I have um, a really beautiful little community of women um, on Facebook. Um, and I know Facebook groups can be a little wishy-washy, uh, but mine's really awesome. Actually, I just love them. We do like virtual women's circles and kind of you know, daily check-ins in that group, which is just really, really nourishing. So it's a lovely place to hang out online. Um, even if you're super discerning about the places you hang out online. (laughs) Awesome. I will put links to all of that in the show notes. Jesse, thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's been a total pleasure. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. Speaking of the Real Talk Radio family, I wanted to give a huge shout out to Adam Day, my producer and sound engineer. Adam created the music for this show, and he makes everything work and flow and sound way better than I ever could on my own. You can find him and his music and his sound editing work at adamday.net. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is now a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Courtney. Hi, Courtney. Hi, Nicole. You ready to answer some rapid-fire questions? I'm absolutely ready. It sounds like a lot more pressure. I'm just going to ask you some random (laughs) questions and your answers can be rapid or not rapid. How's that? Okay. Sounds perfect. Uh, My favorite question, what are you totally obsessed with right now? I am totally obsessed with zero waste for some reason. Yeah. I've just started to be more mindful of how much I waste and um, I work in the airline industry and I just so much more aware now of how much uh, like water bottles and just package usage. And I'm just really, really much more aware of that. So I'm trying to cut down on my consumption. And uh, I'm really obsessed with that right now. That's so interesting. Yeah, I've read a couple of books about that. And I feel like I go like down the rabbit hole and then make changes and then some of them stick and then some of them don't. So I'm curious, what's one sort of like low hanging fruit change that you've made that has stuck? Um, the bins at, uh, the bulk bins at Whole Foods. Mm, so yeah. I've, yeah. So, and I've been reusing like glass jars. So I was really intimidated to go in to figure out how the tear weight works and all of that. And I realized like, just ask questions, go in, get all my beans and rice. Cause I'm a vegan. So it's really easy. That's primarily like my area that I shop at anyway. And, um, yeah, it seems to not be as difficult as I thought. Yeah, bulk bins. I love it. I have a couple stores near me that have really great bulk bins, but then I always think about that too. That I'm like, if I just use plastic bags to get the things from the bulk bins, like that's not, yeah. So that's a good suggestion. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, have you done anything like to eliminate some of your? consumption or yeah, to cut down. Well, the, the thing that you mentioned is definitely something um for me too it's well another thing this i mean this isn't necessarily consumption but it's like rethinking trash um i called around to um our the people who collect our 
garbage, right? And we have a yard debris bin, which is like, you know, pine needles, things like that, like things from the yard. And um, they will take like raw fruit and vegetable things, peelings, like basically like if it grows in the ground, then it can go in there. So because we they don't do composting, but so it's nice like even making that change to be like, okay, let's like change trash that is that we're already making, right? Food related stuff, like have it going here instead of putting it like with our other mixed trash. Um, so it's like been some things like that too. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, one other thing I just thought about too that I did not realize the amount uh, you just never think about is like ordering on Amazon mm-hmm. and stuff. You know, just like the package delivery, just to, you know, like my son, uh, he's in his mid twenties and he is always ordering something, you know, and I just see all these paper or cardboard boxes and I just think, wow, you know, it's that's re- I feel like that's really wasteful, but mm-hmm. you know. What can you do right now? Yeah. Um, if you could go back five years and give your younger self some advice, what would it be? It would be to surround myself with people that um, kind of fan my flame, like, you know, set myself on fire and people who would encourage my activities um, and just, just surround myself with, with people who are supportive. Yeah, that's such a good answer. When or in what situation do you feel most yourself? Like when you're totally in your zone and you feel like you're being your truest self, what are you doing? Uh, That would be when I am alone, either reading or writing, um, meditating, just just where I feel completely whole uh, with limited distractions. So uh, when I'm home in Nicaragua, for example, um, I feel really present and I have time and space and, you know, you hear the birds chirping and I just feel really connected with my community at that point. What's one new thing that you would love to try this year? I would love, and um, it might sound kind of boring, but I would love to be able to get uh, a little bit more in touch with my finances. That doesn't sound boring. That sounds more. awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And invest more. I feel like I that is one aspect of my life that, that I've neglected for many years. And I really want to get more involved and get more educated. All right. 2018, all the money. I'm into it. <laughs> sounds yeah, good. Um, last question. What's something that you find yourself wishing that people were more open and honest about? What are you curious about, about other people? Um, I'm, I think that people should be more open and honest about what they're passionate about, not what they think that someone else wants to hear. You know, like, uh, if somebody's really passionate about cycling, you know, I mean, that's what, like, I really want to hear. I want to hear about the person and, and what really gets them going. Yeah, it's yeah. I agree. I think that's that's a good answer. It's an interesting answer too because yeah, sometimes that's why I like the "what are you totally obsessed with?" question because sometimes we're afraid, like, oh, this thing I'm obsessed with seems uncool, or even when you said, "Well, this might be boring," you know, it's like just like loving what you love or being into what you're into and being open about that. Yeah, absolutely. I and I that. feel like with society, you feel like you have to just do it, re- you know, a canned response. You, you know, mm-hmm. like you just really have to what others want to hear. I want to make a lot of money or I want to do whatever. Whereas some people are like, I just want to go and have a beautiful garden. I mean, I think that's awesome. Yeah, I think so too. I totally agree. Um, so you're a member of our Patreon support squad, which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making the podcast possible since you make a powerful reoccurring pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show each season, for which I'm very grateful. And I would love for you to share why you decided to support the show. Um, I decided to support the show because your content is invaluable to me. I feel like um, there's 
I just gained so much value from it. And I almost feel like by listening to it and all the awesome links that you provide and all the writings that uh, you send out, I feel almost like I'm stealing it. <laughs> I'm supporting it. Um, and, and I pass it along and I highly encourage anyone who uh, gains value from your from your podcast to support it. I, I just recently, um, I think like the uh, Above the Line with Nikita, I just recently um, subscribed to her email or mm-hmm. to her uh, newsletter and she was on your show. And that has been so super, super valuable with company information. So just little things like that. I feel like you're doing a great job and I just want to you know, show that, that I support you. Well, I love that. And like I said, I'm super grateful and it makes me happy that you subscribe to Nikita's newsletter. She's so great. It was so good to have her on the show. And I feel like she's providing something that's definitely unique. It's not like any other newsletter that I'm on. So it's nice to hear that someone else found her through me. That's fun. Yeah. Absolutely. And to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want over 40 hours of bonus content, plus lots of other fun opportunities and extras, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight episode season. I can't tell you how much your support means to me, and it'll be so much fun to get to know you better after you've joined our community. Maybe we can even record a future outro together like this one. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can. And no matter what, we're in this together. (laughs) 